Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. Ultimately, Appalachian Voices believes energy should be as affordable and as democratic as possible, meaning we should have distributed energy across Appalachia. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World, we're back. It's Will. And Neil, what up, man? What's going on? Just getting ready for the Christmas season, you know. Christmas is in the air, huh? Yeah, we skipped Thanksgiving. Trees lit. All the cities have lit their trees. Here we are, first week of December. I'm glad we, we finally got the uh, FBS pick'em out of the way to save you more embarrassment towards the end of the year. Yeah, we'll have to crown you officially at some point. I'm going to need a rose or something. Belt, maybe. Championship Aaron Rodgers belt. <laughs> I'll be waiting on it. I'll, I'll, I'll send it your way. All right. You got any app news for us tonight? I do have a little bit of app news. I wanted to mention, I don't know if you're aware but in Alabama, the coal miners have been on strike. In Brookwood, Alabama, they're striking against Warrior Met Coal to restore some pay and benefits that were taken in 2016. But I just wanted to mention that because they've been on strike for – so the average for strike for, I think, any occupation, not just coal, but it's about six weeks. You know how long they've been on strike? I don't know. 20 months. Oh my gosh. So that's dedication and that's that's hard on a family. So I just wanted to mention that, give them a shout out. I hope hope something comes of that uh, soon, especially during this time of year. Yeah, so I assume the Warrior Met Cole has uh replaced them with uh other workers, I guess. They have. Yep. Yeah. That's a bad situation. So just thoughts, thoughts for that. Um, another piece of news I got, I, I know I mentioned this last, last week, but the ARC has the Appalachian Teacher Project. They had that last weekend. All the student, college students from area colleges presented their projects. But I wanted to mention it because if you go to their website, you can read about all the different economic community development projects that they've been working on. It, it's Cool to see, but also I wanted to mention that during the weekend, they announced that they renamed the Appalachian Teacher Project to the Appalachian Collegiate Research Initiative. So now, To make it easier to remember, Will? <laughs> yeah, I don't really know the reasoning behind uh, renaming it, but they did. And also they have an RFP up for next year for colleges and universities that are interested in doing this program with the ARC and East Tennessee State. So I wanted to mention that. 
Another little piece of app news. Paste Magazine came out with an article recently on the history of the pepperoni roll. So it talks about how there are a lot of misconceptions in Appalachia, even when it comes to food and how there are a lot of different food history in Appalachia, especially central Appalachia, which is where the pepperoni roll started by an Italian who was a coal miner. So it's a good story on the history of the pepperoni roll, but also I wanted to mention it because in the article, West Virginia has introduced a bill, Bill HCR 34, to make the pepperoni roll the official state food of West Virginia. So it's passed the House. It's now in the Senate. So it may become the official state food. What do you think about that, Neil? Shows you what I know. I thought it already was. <laughs> I kind of did, too. I mean, uh, have you ever had a pepperoni roll? Uh, of course good. I have, man. I love them. Yeah? You're a big fan? Yeah. You know, I don't Where know did you have it? Uh, I've had it a variety of places, uh, gas stations uh, along the way. You know, That's what I was going to say. Every gas station in West Virginia has pepperoni rolls in, the, in one of those hot turning – <laughs> yeah you look, at, you look at those little hot turning wheels and like it's either like pepperoni roll or hot dog and <laughs> who knows how long a hot dog's been there but it doesn't seem to matter how long the pepperoni rolls yeah, they say the same thing who cares how long the pepperoni rolls there you <laughs> will still eat it yeah, absolutely it. absolutely so kudos to west virginia for making it or trying to make it the official state food so you yeah. got a little as well yeah, well, I got a little app news for us. How about, you know, you come on our show, we, we, we're kingmakers is what they say about us. But earlier in the year, we had a, uh, a guest on right before the high school football season started, Coach Justin Haddix from Boyle County. And of course, he goes on to win a state title last Friday night. So shout out to Coach Haddix and congratulations on his third in a row state championship i mean he did it a couple times before he came on the show but we got him over the hump this year and uh, he landed on top again so kudos to him and, and his team and, and that community in, in kentucky you're claiming that we're kingmakers kingmakers man <laughs> you know that's Come absolutely absolutely our our uh, our line everybody that comes on seems to go on to have great success i did want to mention that you know, with all the federal funding from, you know, everything from the American Rescue Plan, the Infrastructure Invest in Jobs Act, the CHIPS Act, and now the Inflation Reduction Act, there's been a ton of federal money flowing into Appalachia. And a lot of communities have been organizing to figure out what to do with all this funding. And speaking of that, I wanted to mention an organization that is working with the Virginia Department of Housing and Community Development. And that organization is App Voices. Robert Kell, who is on our show tonight, wrote an article in regards to Appalachian Voices working with the Virginia Department of Housing and Community Development to develop or create a task force to hold listening sessions to get input of how the community can support Southwest Virginia and the, for the economic future. So it's a great article, one in regards to what Appalachian Voices does, but also it talks about 
how the uh, community members of this area can go to some listening sessions. And they've been having these listening sessions all week. The last one is today. They've been in Lee County, two in Wise County, and I think today is in Dickinson County. So I'm going to give a shout out. I'll put that article in the show notes, but I wanted to just mention that because Robert and Appalachian Voices is on the show today. And also on the show today, we're talking about solar. Have you ever considered getting solar on your house? I have, Will. You know, it's something I've looked into. You know, I got some questions around the affordability of it and where it's going right now. So uh, hopefully we can learn a little bit more about that today, too, with our guest also from App Voices, Autumn Long. Hopefully she'll be able to tell me how to figure out how to get solar cheaper on my house, Will. <laughs> yeah, definitely wanted to have Appalachian Voices on here for all the great work that they're doing. We'll, I guess, go ahead and get them on here and let them talk about that work and yep. what they do and who they are. Yeah, let's do it. People don't care about us anymore. Let's get our guests on. All right, let's go. episode today we have an organization Appalachian Voices it's a nonprofit founded in 1997 it brings people together to protect the land air and water of central and southern Appalachia working in five states that being Kentucky North Carolina Tennessee West Virginia and Virginia they also work to advance a, a just transition to a generative and equitable clean energy economy from Appalachian Voices, from the organization, we have two special guests, Robert Kell, the new economy program manager and part of the recent cohort of the Appalachian Leadership Institute. So congrats, Robert, for that. Thank you as so much, well, Will. As well as Autumn Long, the director of the newly established Appalachian Solar Finance Fund. So we want to thank you both for being here. Thank you for taking the time. We appreciate it a great deal. Thanks, yeah, for, thanks for having us. We'll get right into Appalachian Voices in a second and all the great work you guys are doing. But first, we wanted to kick it off with a really important question that we ask all our guests. Like most Appalachians are big on tradition. Our family, we're big on tradition as well. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. We usually have this gigantic spread of appetizers usually more than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you both, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Oh, interesting. Um, my mom makes a mean deviled egg. So I think that would probably be my favorite holiday appetizer. Yeah, you're speaking to Neil's heart. heart. <laughs> I think I had six before we had uh, our Thanksgiving meal uh, the other day. So I'm a big deviled egg guy. That's really only three eggs, though, so you're fine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Good point. Mine's not an appetizer, but my granny makes these pickled beets, and I, like, add them to just about everything I can. They taste and smell like Christmas, so it's kind of a holiday dish. Yeah. You have it for all the holidays? We just have them around because she cans them in the summer, and they're just, they're just available to whoever wants them. Nice. Let's talk about Appalachian Voices. So I mentioned generically what it was, but I know you have a few focus areas, that being mountaintop removal, coal ash or water quality, 
the new economy that I mentioned, which in, which is in regards to economic well-being, energy democracy or affordable clean energy, and fracking and pipelines. Those are some of the common focus areas that you have. But can you just let our listeners know what Appalachian Voices is and then more specifically what you do and what your programs are? Yeah, sure thing. Um, Autumn, I'll go ahead and start. So yeah, well, you've named basically our four objectives as an organization, but um, just to restate them in, in a different way, they're building a new economy in Central Appalachia, which is the program that I'm a part of, fighting the build out of new fossil fuel infrastructure. So that's like stopping pipelines and frack gas from um, destroying more land, fighting for energy democracy, which just looks like advocating for utility reform and local, local control of our energy systems and addressing um, coal's impact. So that's where we fight for um, folks with black lung, um, against mountaintop removal, addressing reclamation and acid mine drainage issues. So those are our big four objectives. Autumn and I, I, I think we both um, fall under our new economy program, which looks like a deep grassroots mobilization and outreach in our communities to make sure that real voices, resident citizens are driving the conversation and the innovation happening in our region. It looks like um, restoring land and using innovative funding mechanisms like AMLER, which is the Abandoned Mineland Economic Revitalization Fund looks like using Brownfields funds to restore the land, but make it a part of our economic um, ecosystem, you know, putting it back into productive use for our communities. Um, it looks like providing capacity and project management for community-driven development. And then it's all of our solar work. And so I'll let Autumn talk a little bit more about all of that. Yeah, thanks, Robert. That's a great overview of all the really broad and deep work that Appalachian Voices um, does and has done for a long time in this region. And my work focuses on uh, solar in central Appalachia. I direct a program called the Appalachian Solar Finance Fund, um, which is a regional financial and technical assistance program. And its goal is really to catalyze new solar projects and solar market development in coal impacted communities in central Appalachia. So we're working in six states throughout central Appalachia in 147 counties, all of which are impacted by the economic decline in the coal industry. And solar um, represents a really significant new economic opportunity and energy generation opportunity for the region. Um, and so uh, the program is a, a lot of fun, to be honest. Um, we have a significant amount of federal grant dollars um, that we're able to give out in the form of sub awards, grant sub awards and technical assistance contracts to help um, nonprofits and public institutions and local businesses that serve as anchors in their local communities go solar and access the benefits of on-site solar energy. 
Um, so I'm having a blast doing that. And I also uh, work with Robert and other members of the New Economy Program on a more uh, locally focused project in Southwest Virginia called the Energy Storage and Electrification Manufacturing Jobs Project, which really just rolls off the tongue. And it's a convenient title, Energy Storage and Electrification Manufacturing Jobs Project. My first uh, task was to memorize the title of that project <laughs> when I started managing it, ESEM, we refer to it for short. And this project is focused in Southwest Virginia, and we're helping several manufacturers there who have historically been reliant on the coal industry for selling their products and their manufacturing lines. Um, and we're helping them diversify into new to new sectors focused around electrification and energy storage. So these are really um, important employers in the local area and their multi-generational family businesses that have been around a long time. And their leaders recognize the need to diversify their market and their client base. And so we're helping helping them navigate that process and set their businesses up for success within the reality of a 21st century energy economy that's increasingly becoming centered around renewables. Appalachian Voices, you've been around, like I said, for 25 years doing incredible work really throughout the five states, throughout Central Appalachia, Southern Appalachia. But you really started I think, like I mentioned in the opener, as an advocacy uh, group to really advocate for the communities. But you have grown into, like, like you mentioned, Autumn, having direct funding for certain things, being able to go even beyond the advocacy into implementation. I wanted to ask you about that, how you have grown over the years, especially when it comes to the new economy, to di really diversifying, getting away from the extractive economy? How have you gone from advocacy into implementation or even funding or financing some of these programs? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, we started as an organization fighting mountaintop removal and fighting um, other fossil fuel infrastructure, and we lost. <laughs> we kept losing. That's not to say that those fights weren't worth it and that to continue to fight those things um, isn't worth it. But what Adam Wells, who is um, the director of our regional program, started to think about was how can we stop fighting and how can we start building? And, and so with that sort of vision of what can we build with community members, we got to work thinking about what is the future, especially of Southwest Virginia and of the seven coal-filled counties that make up um, that region. And what we quickly noticed was Folks wanted to work with us, right? Folks wanted to have extra capacity to elevate the visions of what the future of small towns, small coal communities could be. And um, they just needed support. And we went, we, we, and we weren't showing up. We were already here, right? We lived here. Um, everyone who's a part of our new economy team lives in either Southwest Virginia or West Virginia. So these are our neighbors. And what we heard was there's room to think about the new economy while we still have folks who are coal miners. And, and there's room to honor the legacy of coal in our communities and all the hard work that's went into that industry 
while we think about um, the future of not only the energy systems that we'll use, but just the day-to-day -day life and revitalization of our towns and neighborhoods. That's a really good point. That was going to be one of my next questions. Neil and I come from the coal fields of Eastern Kentucky. Robert, I, I know you are from the coal fields of Virginia and, and Autumn, you're in West Virginia, all have a proud history and heritage in regards to coal. But sometimes, you know, when people start talking about this new economy, start talking about diversification, a lot of people think that we are forgetting about our heritage, our history. And I, I'm glad you made that point, Robert, that you're, we're not forgetting about our history, but we're just trying to transition into something that can reinvigorate the economy throughout the region. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, as someone born and raised in West Virginia, who's my grandfather was a UMWA coal miner, my father worked in coal mines, you know, all of us who live in this region have ties to coal and, you know, the legacy of energy extraction and production. And West Virginia and Central Appalachia has always been an energy producing region. And I think our vision and goals for diversifying that landscape of what energy, you know, what types of energy production um, are going on here is really critical for, you know, the coming decades throughout this coming century. West Virginia and Central Appalachia more broadly have borne a very heavy burden of this legacy of fossil fuel extraction and the entire energy system that this country has relied upon for the past century. And so it's, I think it's important for us, you know, personally, as people who live here and care about the region and also our programs and organization to ensure that this region doesn't get left behind in this transition to a renewable energy-based economy and that we're given the like respect we deserve and the resources that we need and deserve to ensure that our communities don't get left behind and aren't further burdened um, with you know the ongoing legacy of fossil fuel extraction without also having opportunities to embrace, you know, this new renewable energy economy. And you have to show people that that's possible. And that's, I think, to speak to Robert's point about, you know, building a new economy, you know, you can't just tell people, oh, go work in solar energy, it'll be fine. Like you have to prove to people that this is real, that it's happening, that it has lasting benefits for careers and communities. And so, we're trying to build programming and you know projects that do that work of proving the viability of a new energy economy and um, making sure that those benefits get distributed into our local communities. Right. So much of the old economy is built on globalization, right? Like it's at the whims of global superpowers. And what our new economy is doing is rooting it into our local systems and the local leadership. And, and, and like Autumn said, it's like showing up and listening and supporting that visioning. Like we don't want to romanticize like the real like legacy of coal that has scarred our land and our people. Like we just want a huge 
black lung fight at Congress to help those minors have the health care that they deserve. But that's a fight that we had to go for, right? But coal has produced a heritage and a few assets that we can leverage into the new economy. But it takes planning and it takes dedication to, to see those assets transformed into, I was going to say assets, but that, that's what they are, into the new economy. I love those points. And, and, and I also like the words that both of you use. You use deserve and you use respect, which I think goes a long way when talking about the people uh, of Central Appalachia, of Southern Appalachia. One of the things I wanted to ask you about in regards to the, to the new economy, to, to energy, and specifically to solar, historically, our region has kind of been a little risk adverse, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship or maybe in general hesitant to change. So what is it about solar in regards to transitioning to this new economy? Is it more about educating people in regards to solar and how important it is and how it can change the environment? Is it cost or is it just the resistance in general to change? Maybe what are some of the misconceptions and then what do you battle on a daily basis in regards to this idea of of being hesitant to change? Well, those are great questions, and it's work we think about a lot and try and keep in mind in all of our messaging and outreach and just the goals of our work in general. Solar is still a relatively new technology, and a lot of people still aren't that familiar with it, and especially in a region like Central Appalachia, where it's not as widely deployed yet or common to see, um, it still is like an unusual feature for a lot of folks to see solar panels in their local communities. That's becoming more common as time goes by and our work, if we do our jobs well, will lead to more and more solar deployment in our local communities in Central Appalachia. But yeah, just educating folks about how the technology works and the types of policies that are in place for people and communities to get value out of it and cost savings on their energy bills are the really critical points. I've worked in solar for seven years now. And in my experience, working in you know local communities in West Virginia wow. and the surrounding states, as soon as you convince people that they're going to save money, by going solar, that's pretty much the only conversation you need to have in most cases. And there are a lot of people who are motivated to go solar for other reasons too, whether it's, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions or becoming more energy independent or resilient in their, you know, household or community. There's a lot of good reasons to go solar, but saving money is a pretty universal bottom line interest in, you know, those pocketbook, um, those pocketbook issues tend to motivate individuals, they motivate businesses, they motivate, you know, community leaders who are trying to spread their, you know, limited funding as widely and well as possible. And so, yeah, I think like just basic education, dispelling misinformation and myths that, still are very pervasive about solar energy and its viability. You know, I still hear comments all the time like, oh, we don't we don't get enough sun here or like this isn't a good region for solar. Solar is not really viable here, which is absolutely not true. You know, and throughout the United States, even in the farther north regions of the country, we get more average sun exposure than 
say the country of Germany, which has globally led in solar deployment for the past couple of decades. So um, the technology continues to increase in efficiency and become more cost effective and more affordable all the time. Costs have really gone down a ton in the past decade to 15 years as well. And that's another kind of misinformation that folks still folks folks still conceive of solar as being like expensive and like a boutique thing for rich people to do and that's really not not only is it an affordable investment there's really enough turn on investment for your upfront you know your upfront investment and um installing solar so i like to talk about you know all of those economic reasons to go solar and then if folks want to talk about climate change or uh, environmental issues i'm happy to talk about that too but in a lot of cases that's not even that's not even a topic that needs to come up yeah you're going to get tired of hearing this from me but this is the truth of what we do is patience and deep community engagement. And so the Solar Work Group of Southwest Virginia, which is a coalition that we help facilitate in the region, got started in 2016. So for the last six years, what well, going on seven years, we've been slowly engaging community members and local leaders around what would it look like to build out a solar industry here. And with that deep, slow patience, we've been able to make huge progress. And we've been able to look at what are the actual real barriers, not just like the perceptions, but the policy barriers to building out this industry. And then going to Richmond in Virginia, the, our capital, and going to the legislature and saying, these are the policy barriers that are preventing us from building out this industry. So with that sort of dedication of showing up and listening, we've been able to bring people along with us. And now we are well on our way with the Solar Finance Fund, the Solar Apprenticeship Program, and a new program that we're about to unroll, which is RACER, Renewables Advancing Community Energy Resiliency. A mouthful. I don't know why we use all of those fancy titles. But anyways, what the point I'm just trying to make is when you take your time and you listen to people and you talk with folks and you're not in a hurry to do economic development, you can create real power and real relationships that can that can build a whole new industry. That's a really good point. I think a lot of places, a lot of organizations, especially economic development organizations are in a race and right. try to do it as fast as possible. And there's a lot of overlap, but really talking to the residents, talking to the communities where you're working is a really important point. I wanted to ask about the fund just a little bit. You, you know, you mentioned building this education, building this deep roots or, or the capacity building in regards to educating in regards to solar. But important to your fund, I would think, is really building a solar market or kind of building a pipeline you know, you mentioned you focus on nonprofits, you focus on government, you focus on establishments. Are, are you eventually going to start focusing on individuals, on residential units um, to try to build out that pipeline? Obviously, with a fund like this, it's important to have a pipeline or important to have a solar market. How are you going to really build that out? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Will. Um we see the chicken and egg problem in the solar industry in this region where it's a huge workforce opportunity and job creation opportunity and wealth retention and creation opportunity. But in order to ensure that there are good 
steady and growing jobs available in this industry, there has to be demand. There has to be that project pipeline, that steady and growing demand for this um, for this resource. And so that's where the solar finance fund comes in is to spur that market demand by injecting funding and technical assistance into projects that are viable, but that are facing, you know, barriers to getting off the ground, either due to policy issues on particular state or local levels, or because of financial constraints or economic constraints for the project or the community. And so we want to make sure that you know, the longer term goal we keep in mind is to build a, a stable and sustainable and robust marketplace for solar in the region. Like a lot of work of nonprofits, eventually, you know, if we do our jobs well, we will no longer be necessary and the, the private market will be, you know, up and running and, you know, just chugging along without the types of you know, financing and technical assistance injections that we're providing now as we're trying to catalyze this new market. Answer your other question, you know, at this point, we are focusing on that sort of small to medium scale commercial solar market for, yeah, local governments and nonprofits and businesses. And that that looks like um, public libraries and community groups serving disadvantaged or unhoused people. It looks like community farms, animal shelters, local government buildings. We've been working with uh, several different faith institutions and churches specifically throughout the region that provide a lot of community services for their local populations. So these are projects that are not only, you know, impactful for the organizations that get the cost savings from the solar installation on their site, but they're also strategic in that they're high profile and high value organizations doing important work in their communities and are able to showcase solar um, and the benefits of solar like in positive ways in the coal fields of central Appalachia. At this point, we don't work specifically with the residential sector, but that is, you know, a huge and growing marketplace for sure. And more and more people are going solar on their homes as well. The Solar Finance Fund doesn't work directly with residents, but Appalachian Voices in the Solar Work Group has ran residential programs to help folks get access to solar. I think, you know, there's this huge misconception out there that policy at the state level isn't in the way. But like, there's so many policy hurdles and changes necessary to even like help folks get access access to solar, especially folks who are living in like multifamily housing or low income families. So we've had to fight a lot of fights and have one in Virginia to make solar accessible. Um, we're currently in a fight right now to see community or shared solar expanded to the coalfield region. But folks forget how much power monopoly utilities have over what type of energy um, we get to our homes and our electric bills. And those are all hurdles over the last six years that we've slowly chipped away at. And, and we're optimistic, at least from App Voices perspective, the solar workers perspective, to, to get to a point to help more and more residents get solar on their homes. Since you brought it up, what do you think or what does Appalachian Voices think about these large for-profit utility companies building these solar farms? 
and then deploying that energy to residential units uh, for a cost. You know, we have a lot of abandoned mine land in Appalachia. That's land that is very much scarred and like not forested. And again, that's a part of the legacy of that extraction industry. But it now is an asset that should be leveraged responsibly. And any benefits of using that land for energy production should be at the direction of the community. And any benefits driven from that production should be given to communities. Um, there's a lot of legacy. I mean, we both read, you know, uneven ground, and we 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 know what it, what land ownership patterns look like. So the same folks who benefited off of extraction are going to be benefiting off of like keeping land in their pockets and and going after it. Ultimately, Appalachian Voices believes energy should be as affordable and as democratic as possible, meaning we should have distributive energy across Appalachia where it brings down the cost of electricity for folks. So in some cases, that might look like a utility or a co-op providing certain transmission infrastructure to get that electricity to all of us when we need it. But it should um, mean that we also have the ability to generate our own electricity or have our own battery storage on our home. So we see shared solar or what's otherwise known as community solar as being one of those equalizers. It allows people basically to subscribe like you do to Netflix to a solar system. And then you get the benefits of having access to those electrons and that lower electricity without the need to constantly build these massive utility farms. And one of the things that we try to sell is if you take all of the abandoned mine land in Appalachia and you take all of the brownfield sites, which are basically environmentally damaged sites, think about gas stations, old schools, old abandoned shopping centers. If you take all of this infrastructure that's already there and you start to put generative renewable energy there, you suddenly have so much more capacity and you don't need to be you know, deforesting or using prime for, um, farmland, you already have access. But again, there are real policy hurdles, like, you know, to getting shared solar as, um, as a benefit for communities and to build out on mine lands and brownfields land and brownfield sites is often more expensive because of where those sites are located. So you need a mechanism to incentivize those sites and in Virginia right now, we're actually working, uh, we have a grant fund, the Virginia Brownfield and Coal Mine Renewable Energy Fund, again, a mouthful, that is sitting there without any money. And so we're trying to convince the legislature to put $20 million into this fund so that we can start incentivizing using these brownfield mine sites to provide community solar for folks who want to be able to subscribe to that the, the energy saving that they would get there. I find, you know, utilities are happy to support and develop solar when it benefits them and when they can make profit on it. And yet they will fight tooth and nail between against policy changes that allow more solar development that they are not in control of. And, you know, the type of distributed rooftop solar that takes place on homes, on businesses, in communities 
is really a, a much more radical form of energy generation and consumption. We're really fundamentally shifting the role of the consumer in our energy system by putting literal power into people's hands to produce their own electricity on site for themselves. And it is an existential threat to the existing monopoly utility model. And it has the potential to really democratize our energy system and to change the relationship between people who are consuming energy into people who are actually generating energy and becoming active participants in that system, which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, and it's also a really big change in how things have always been done. And anytime there is that type of like very large shift on the horizon, the powers that be and the vested interests that are benefiting from the status quo are gonna freak out about it. And that is what we see time and again with utility companies and fossil fuel interests, you know, just seeing any change to the status quo in our energy system as a, a threat to their bottom lines. One of the things I did want to want to ask about are, are jobs. So we know that it's not just coal in all 13 states of Appalachia. It's steel, it's textile, it's timber, uh, a lot of extractive energies that have produced high wage jobs. When you talk about transitioning to this new economy, whether, whether it be clean energy or other opportunities in regards to diversifying the economy, is that something that you worry about from your perspective, that the wages aren't going to match what they once once were? Or do you worry about displacement? I know in Asheville, for instance, you know, a lot of their uh, shift has been towards the outdoor recreation economy. A lot of people that work in that industry can't afford to live in Asheville. Uh, there's been a lot of displacement there. Is that something uh, that you're concerned about with this transition? I actually think there's a really big opportunity to create good living wage, sustainable jobs and careers in local communities through the renewable energy industry. And solar is a good example because, you know, one of the main like pathways to solar careers is through the skilled electrical trades. And so becoming a, a master electrician or a journeyman electrician is a great career, a well-paying career path. And there's going to be such a huge demand for electricians in the coming years and decades as more and more of our um, economy becomes electrified and we electrify more and more things in our lives. I saw recently the phrase like electricians are going to save the planet and that is not untrue. Um, we're going to need hundreds of thousands actually of, of trained electricians coming into the job market in the coming years. And so these are the types of like skilled blue collar trades that have historically been very important part of the workforce in Appalachia. And so these aren't, you know, unfamiliar types of jobs, you know, they're construction and skilled trades. So I think our population and our workforce is like really well positioned to move into these industries. The solar workforce to date has, you know, had really low rates of unionization. And as it grows and matures, I think unionizing, you know, the solar workforce and, you know, the IBEW and other trades, construction trades, they are going to play a, an important role in ensuring that these jobs are like 
living wage, well-paid, good, safe jobs that can make a a healthy, you know, long-term career for people. Yeah. You know, the, the only thing, you know, I'll add is that we frame our work through this lens of just transition. We know that transition is happening, but justice infused in it will not happen unless we all demand it. And at the core of the just transition movement are workers and their families. And so if you look at states like Colorado and Illinois, where just transition offices are being set up, it centers around workers and not only workers who are currently in the extraction industry, but generations before and the generations coming. And so it's really important that we have workers at the table with us. And this one of our biggest priorities is what we, we think a lot about. And, you know, our solar apprenticeship program is, is one of the small steps that we've taken to try to derive that through line of, um, you know, um, co-workers and their grandchildren sometimes their children, what what are the industries that are emerging and how can we help you in, in the present moment get those credentials and start building that pathway? And we recently hosted some of these apprentices at um, a ribbon cutting. It's It was fascinating. They have gone through an apprenticeship program and now they're putting solar on their high schools where they graduated high schools at. And then what they said is a very similar story that if I think a lot of coal families know for generations, they were told, we don't want you to be in the mines. So there's already this notion, this generational notion of trying to move away from that, those jobs. And it's just what pathways can we create for them? And apprenticeship programs are, are one way in order to create that type of connection to, to work, but also back to the energy industries, which we're all so familiar with. I, I think it's just incredibly exciting work and it's not what will be i think it's already happening we're already seeing it happening all throughout not only our region but other regions and so why can't our regions be the first why can't our region be the best i like how you mentioned before robert when we were talking earlier about the assets that coal have left behind and that is the workforce the talented workforce that we have in our region that can easily transition into this new energy economy I know you work or you talk about, especially with the new economy, this sustainable economic development. Can you just define sustainable economic development or you feel like it is and how it's a little bit different than the old economic development? Yeah, that's a, a great question for us. And maybe I could speak for myself. A sustainable economy is one that is generative, meaning like it's able to produce on itself what it needs to to make it day to day, right? Um, there's only a finite amount of coal in the ground. And so once we dig it all up, what happens, right? So that's a, a, a part of this idea of what is generative, what can keep producing on itself. But sustainable also means some a system where power and profits are shared in a, a democratic way, meaning that that folks who are the workers, who are the, the makers, who are the, the movers in an economy, not the folks who sit on boards or um, who are the investors, but the folks who actually do the work are the ones who get to take home the profit. And then that profit is reinvested through their normal economic activity into the local economy. So there are systems in place where you help 
entrepreneurs be able to start businesses where workers get to own and their own businesses. Um, so those are my two big points when I think about sustainability. What is generative about it? How does it produce itself? And then how is profit and power shared within it? Is it circulating within the local economy, within the workers and families? Or does it go to the shareholders and out of the community somewhere else? Can you just let our listeners know, you know, how they can get in touch? I know, Robert, you mentioned you have a, a upcoming, you're working with the community in Lee County, Virginia in a couple of weeks. But how can communities get in touch with you? How can businesses get in touch with the Solar Finance Fund? Can you talk about maybe your newspaper? I know that Appalachian Voices has a blog and a newspaper. Just how can people reach out? How can they get in touch? How can they find out more about Appalachian Voices? Well, yeah, folks can definitely reach out to me. It's pretty easy. Robert at appvoices.org. Just feel free to email me. Autumn can give you her address. You can learn more about App Voices at our website, appvoices.org. That's pretty easy there. We do have the link to our front porch blog where we update it really regularly with new stories and happenings. The newspaper, The, the Voice, is in an interesting place. We did recently put out for our 25th anniversary uh, print edition, but I'm not sure if we're going to be putting out more print editions, but that is how a lot of folks know us because that's one of the first things that we had was this newspaper share and what was happening in the region. But definitely on our website, there's a bunch of information that's updated regularly about our work. And then folks can fill out, feel free to, to reach out to me via email and then Autumn, how, how do folks get a hold of you and the, the, the fund? Yeah, the Solar Finance Fund website, which is solarfinancefund.org, um, is a great place to learn all about the program and check your eligibility criteria and location criteria um, and to complete an application if your organization is interested in going solar with financial and technical support from the fund. Um, and you can also reach out to me directly at autumn.long at appvoices.org. And I'm happy to sort of help folks walk through the process and connect with resources and talk about solar all day. <laughs> This is, does the finance fund have a maximum that you can apply for? We're really excited about the Inflation Reduction Act's new incentives that really expand um, the ability of especially tax-exempt organizations like nonprofits and public institutions to access these tax benefits. With that in mind, you know, we're generally capping our granting at about 20% of total project cost. Um, and it's really a need-based and an impact-based kind of criteria consideration. So we, we have a review committee that reviews each application and makes a funding award decision based on, you know, the, the financial need of the project and the impact the project's going to have in their community. But yeah, generally 20% is our ceiling for project coverage. And Robert also mentioned the apprenticeship program that we're supporting, which is, you know, a specific workforce development pilot program in Southwest Virginia, where we've been able to pay for the wages of these apprentices working on solar projects on public schools in Southwest Virginia. So we're hoping to be able to scale and replicate that local pilot into other 
communities and throughout the region to do more workforce development directly in that way too. That's great, Robert. I'm glad you mentioned that you're, you update your blog very frequently. I, I get on some organizations blog and they have a post from like 1989 and then yeah. that's the most recent post. So uh, for all your listeners out there, check it out. It's the front porch blog on Appalachian Voices. I, I got a couple of just quick questions. If you're all open to that. Certainly. What's your favorite place in Appalachia and favorite thing to do in Appalachia? Well, I can start with my home here in the New River Gorge region of West Virginia. I'm in love with it here. I live at Summersville Lake, which is the coolest lake in West Virginia, I would say. And um, the New River Gorge is an awesome destination for not only whitewater uh, paddling, but also rock climbing. And I've gotten really into rock climbing since I've lived in this area. And there's some amazing amazing rock here and Summersville Lake actually offers some of the coolest deep water solo rock climbing in the world so it's a world-class destination for all sorts of adventure tourism it's not a national park for nothing right exactly well deserving my favorite place is my granny's not just like her home and and everything that makes her home her home but there's this beautiful creek that runs behind her house and it just is where all my childhood memories are. And my favorite thing actually is connected to that land and it's gardening. And my grandparents had a big garden out by the creek and it was surrounded by like apple trees and different things. So it was always like this kind of sacred thing. The garden was treated as like this very sacred space. And like, I always knew I was supposed to respect it. And then as I got older and started to work in it and help can, it's just the piece that stayed with me. And now like I, my grandfather's gone and I still go to granny's and I have her a much smaller garden, um, but still try to keep the legacy of using that space for food for her. I was going to ask, I feel like canning is, is beginning to be a lost tradition. Mm-hmm. And my parents, my parents and my grandparents canned so much, but it wasn't passed down to me. I cannot can to save my life. So I'm glad that you said you you still can. I can some, but yeah, no. And that's because I've asked granny, right? I think like the, all that traditional wisdom, hopefully, I think it's be, being re-inspired in our generations um, and the next generations, like food production and canning in general, like yeah, no, it's all because of her. Well, I consider myself a recovering homesteader. So I had a, an extended period of very deep, committed gardening and canning as well, Robert. And it is one of those really very cool, you know, old time traditions that is now like hashtag trending like canning is definitely on the upswing and you know all the cool kids want to make your granny's pickled beets yeah (laughs) autumn i wanted to ask you i've heard you've been called the oprah of solar you get solar you get solar (laughs) you get solar i wanted to ask you in 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 light of oprah what is your favorite book and favorite business in appalachia for both of you Okay, I have two businesses, one of which is actually a nonprofit, but talking about gardening and canning, I'm going to highlight um, New Roots Community Farm here in Fayetteville, West Virginia, um, which is a nonprofit community farm, and they grow a ton of food, not only for you know, the retail market, but also for like the local school system and some institutional customers like restaurants. They're an awesome 
organization and a beautiful farm and they just got solar panels. So yay, <laughs> New Roots Community Farm. I'm also a big fan of Kinship Goods in Charleston, West Virginia. They're a really cool clothing company and they make like the cutest designs and I encourage everyone to go buy their Christmas presents at Kinship Goods. <laughs> I think, so I have two favorite Appalachian authors and one of them is Silas House. He's, he's you know, a really great. Clay's Quilt was a, a really beautiful book. And then Bell Hooks, who often isn't seen as an Appalachian. Um, she's um, a Black feminist, but, you know, she grew up in Kentucky and her institute is at Berea and she has a lot to a lot of her writing center on how do we build community? How do we bring folks in our community along with us? So I really appreciate her. And my partner lives in South Carolina in Greenville. And there's um, a little cafe, the Swamp Rabbit Cafe, that I, they have some of the best pie. So I, I'll shout out um, the Swamp Rabbit Cafe. Nice. Two, two great authors, both of which we've spoken about on this show before. Those are both really good answers, Robert. I want to shout out a novelist from Appalachia, Matthew Neal Null. He's uh, from Parkersburg, West Virginia area. And his novel, Honey from the Lion, is a really amazing, like, Appalachian Gothic take on the region's logging industry takes place in like the early 20th century in the high mountains of West Virginia and it's an incredible read and he has a new book coming out next year about the building of Summersville Lake and the town of Gad that was drowned um, when the lake when the dam was um, built to make that lake so I'm really excited to read that next year. Very cool I just have two more quick questions a very important question. Cornbread or biscuits? Um, I like fried cornbread. Yeah, my granny will fry it on the stovetop just like a pancake. I'm not really into baked cornbread, but fried cornbread every day of my life, I would take mm. it. Sounds delicious. Well, and I'm on Team Biscuit. <laughs> I, I, Neil's answer is both. I don't think you can go wrong, cornbread or biscuits. But, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, the other thing I was going to say is I think I really need to go to Robert's granny's house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the last question quick yeah. question i had since we just got past thanksgiving do you have a cutoff for leftovers my cutoff for leftovers is probably not fda approved i will keep going back to that well for many many days as long as the leftovers are still around i'm here for it <laughs> it's funny because i I would say one day normal leftovers is the cutoff for me because I'm pretty food averse. But if it's brown beans, you you got a full week on brown a pot of brown beans. So, <laughs> in tradition of our podcast, we ask all of our guests the same question just to kind of you know get a different perspective from everybody. But what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Appalachia? Home for me land the mountains themselves it's just appalachia you know are the hills and the hollers we, we say time and time again on this show appalachia you know its sense of place is its own character and a lot of people obviously their answer are the hills and, and the mm -hmm. hollers but the mountains specifically the last question one, one other co thing that we ask all our guests is like i mentioned place is really important we ground our podcast on place and perspective it's really important for nil and i it's really important for appalachia but just where do you call home what makes it home for you what makes it unique 
I think those hills and hollers that we were, you know, just describing um, for me is my sense of home or that's what makes me feel at home here in Appalachia. Whenever I'm traveling outside of the region, whether it's, you know, by plane or by road, as I start to, you know, see the hills in the distance, I just feel like a sense of relief. Like I know I'm like coming home and these mountains are, I describe them as like very friendly mountains. They kind of like hug you. They're not like scary mountains. They're like friendly, welcoming, loving, affectionate mountains. Despite what the media might suggest, right? Right, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> it's a beautiful answer, Autumn. Um, Y'all know my answer, home is granny's, um, <laughs> where I go. Anything else you'd like to add, let our listeners know about Appalachian Voices? You know, I would just say, like, really, if you're interested in a new economy, no matter where you are in um, the region, um, feel free to reach out. We want, we want to know what's happening in other places. If there are conversations we can support, capacity that we could add, we're here to be teammates with whoever wants to work with us. And also, thank you, Will and Neil, for having us today. This was really fun. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to come on the on the pod. Yeah, definitely. I, I hope we didn't geek out too much. No. I'm here for it. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we greatly appreciate your time. Thank you for, for sharing a little bit of time with us and being on the show. Will, lots of good info there in the session with uh, Appalachian Voices, man. Learned a lot. I guess fun once again. Yeah, yeah. Appalachian Voices obviously does some great work. You know, we mentioned they started really in advocacy for mountaintop removal and have transitioned to their four pillars that Robert was speaking of. Also, the solar Appalachian Solar Finance Fund. But I wanted to mention that they also are starting to focus on air pollution in coal mines. So. They've always focused on water pollution with communities and that impact, communities impacted by coal, but they're transitioning to also focus on air pollution. It's a pretty ambitious project for them. So kudos for that. Kudos for trying to identify what causes of concern coal impacted communities have and really focusing on that. Yeah, kudos to them. Reinventing, reinventing the wheel. Lots of information there on solar energy and the impact. And I'm, like I said before, very interested. Still don't know if I can afford it personally just yet. But I think we're getting to that point. They're definitely on the on the cutting edge of uh, advancements in our in today's world. Like we mentioned in the opener, you know, they've been having some listening sessions with DHCD in Virginia. If you are in one of those communities in Lee County, Wise County, Dickinson County, Virginia, check that out. Check out if you missed the listening session, reach out to the Appalachian Voices to see how you can get your voice heard. Yeah, anybody that's interested in just learning more, check out Appalachian Voices anytime. I don't want to go on and on. I know this episode has been kind of long, but you can check them out at voices.org. Speaking of, to keep this uh, outro a little short, you know, we wanted to highlight Appalachian Voices as our app biz of the week. I know Robert and Autumn both mentioned a couple of great businesses, one a clothing company and also the restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina. So we will also put those in our show notes. But Appalachian Voices is definitely the app biz of the week. Absolutely. 
appreciate their time coming on and talking to us today, Will. So I guess we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong. Nothing.